What do Jesus and John Lennon have in common? Uh, Yes, they were both killed at a young age, Jesus at around 33, John Lennon at the age of 40. But what I mean is, um, was there any overlap in their vision of a better world? If you can go there in your thinking, I'll bet a song will start to play in your head. What song is it? Yeah, imagine. We've all heard it so many times that we know the lyrics by heart, and those of us who are followers of Jesus can't help but notice how unlike Jesus, John Lennon was in certain aspects of his vision. I mean, right from the beginning of the song, it's obvious. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, there's just nothing in those lyrics that we as Christians can endorse, right? Jesus taught that both heaven and hell are real, and so living for today is actually very short-sighted. And when John Lennon sings of a world with no religion, well, that rubs us wrong too. We know that this song is totally incompatible with what Jesus taught, and yet, to say anything negative about it feels almost sacrilegious. I mean, it's that, it's that revered in our culture as a song. And I think the reason why the song resonates with so many non-Christians, and actually, um, even to many of us who are Christians, despite its objectionable lyrics, is because when John Lennon sings that chorus, something inside of us says, yes, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. We all dream of that kind of unity, don't we? Who doesn't long for a world in which war is extinct and people live together in harmony? Well, Jesus had that same dream. We can easily miss it because His exclusive claims do divide people. I mean those words, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, are inherently divisive. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter preached. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I mean, how do we reconcile that with the world that John Lennon imagined? And yet, if you listen closely to the Word of God, you will hear very similar lyrics. Way back in 700 B.C., the Spirit of God dictated almost identical words to two different prophets, Isaiah and Micah. I'll read from Micah 4, but if you compare this passage to Isaiah 2, you'll find the exact same words, the exact same vision, the exact same dream. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. You see it? God's a dreamer too. Only his vision for unity has in mind the coming together of all people around his throne. 
So when the Apostle Paul painted that same picture in Ephesians 1, when he said that God's ultimate plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, that wasn't a new idea. What was new was the identity of the Messiah who is sitting on that throne. Jesus is the unifier of the world. As people from every nation and every race and every culture and every language come near to Him, they also come near to one another. That global unity and harmony and peace that we long for is still in the future. But right now, at this moment in history, God is moving the world toward that climax through the church. The gathering of incredibly diverse people who have a unifying love for and submission to Jesus Christ. We are the early adopters of God's world peace plan. And the way that Paul saw it happening in his day was through the mind-boggling inclusion of Gentiles into a church that at one time was comprised only of Jews. That was such a shocker to him that it dominated the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Now, if he had lived in our day and in our nation, he might have talked about the oneness of white Christians and black Christians or the oneness of Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats. The point is that God unites people who would otherwise be at odds by bringing them near to Jesus and therefore near to one another. That's God's dream. It's not His only dream, but it's very important to Him. And here's the really sobering thing. Whether or not His dream comes true before the return of Jesus is dependent to some degree on us. It's not automatic. Otherwise, why would Jesus, on the night before he died, pray so fervently for the unity of his church? Remember what he said to God the Father that night as he was praying for his 11 disciples? He said, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So why did they need protection? Well, they needed protection because they had a spiritual enemy, the devil, whose mission it was to divide them. See, Satan wants division as much as Jesus wants unity. And and then Jesus said, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for those 11 apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he was praying for, among other people, us. And he said, I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't it interesting how two of God's dreams intersect in that prayer? We know that he wanted everyone to believe that he sent Jesus so that they could live forever. And he wanted the world to be unified. And it is through 
unity among those who believe in Jesus that the rest of the world will come to believe in him too until we are all unified by our common devotion to the Lord Jesus. So you just have to understand that the book of Ephesians is, is really so much about this. This is, a, this is a, a backstory. This is a context that we have to have as we study this book. Paul was watching God's dream come true as Jews and Gentiles, former enemies, merged into a miraculous fusion of humanity with a brand new identity, the body of Christ. And that's not all that Paul talked about in the first three chapters of this letter. He celebrated so many different ways in which God has lavished His grace on us. Remember, grace means undeserved kindness. And we certainly did not deserve for God to handpick us before the creation of the world to be citizens of His kingdom, or better than that, to be His adopted children, holy and blameless in His eyes. And to be redeemed, to be freed from slavery to sin because he paid the ransom for us, not in money, but in blood. Wow! And the thought that right now, we are seated with Jesus in heaven, and that the day is coming when we will claim our inheritance, and God will claim his. Isn't that something to look forward to? And how gracious God was to put his seal of ownership on us, and his power in us through the Holy Spirit. How amazing! that the same incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, enabling us to do more than all we could ask or imagine. The love of God is so vast, it's so wide, so long, so high, so deep, that we could never comprehend it fully. And yet Paul prayed that our experience of his love would grow to the point that we are filled to overflowing with God himself. These last five weeks have been a celebration of who we are in Christ because of the grace of God. But now we come to the halfway point in Ephesians. And this is a turning point. Now it's time for us to become in real life who we already are in Christ. Here's how Paul says it in chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word worthy was used in the Greek language to describe a balancing of the scale. See, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been weighing down one side of the scale with what he calls here the calling we have received. You might never think of yourself as being someone who has been called, but you have been called. You've been called from death to life. You've been called from earth to heaven. You are among those who have been raised from the dead and created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You've been filled with immeasurable power and promised the most amazing future. And now Paul says, balance the scales. Live a life that is on par with the calling you have received. And we want to do that, don't we? We want to become in real life who we already are in God's eyes. The question is, where do we start? Of all the ways that we could pursue a lifestyle that is worthy of our calling, what came into Paul's mind first? The same thing that came into Jesus' mind in John 17 
when he prayed according to God's will. Or we might say it this way, he prayed according to God's dream. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He didn't tell us to create unity because that has already happened through the cross. Our job is to make sure that we don't separate what God has joined together. Our job is to preserve the unity that Jesus died to create. Look at how Paul describes that unity in verses 4 through 6. He says there is one body, that body of Christ he was talking about, that multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual, multicultural, bipartisan body of Christ. And there's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells every single Christian. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, the hope of eternal life with God. One Lord, Jesus, one faith, the same requirement for admission into heaven for everyone. One baptism, same public declaration of faith for everyone. One God and Father of all. God is the Father of every single Christian, and therefore every single Christian is my brother or my sister. And this one God and Father of all is over all and through all and in all. So every church and every individual Christian is identical in the essentials, in spiritual DNA. There's no one in the world that you have more in common with than other Christians. And that unity of the Spirit is the very best advertisement to this divided world for the love and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Which is why our enemy, the devil, is constantly trying to divide us. So much is at stake. For him, division is victory. And you can't deny his success. I was looking for a visual representation of denominationalism and I found this picture of what Nathan Bostian calls the Christian family tree. He even has a theme verse for it. Uh, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's a very positive spin on what has essentially been 2,000 years of church splits. And see, in the beginning there was one church made up of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. But over time, disagreements led to different branches of Christianity. The first major split was in the year 1054 when a faction of Catholics formed the Eastern Orthodox Church. You know what the disagreement was? Well, there was more than one issue, actually, but one very big one was whether or not it was acceptable to use unleavened bread in communion. They divided over that. There was also a disagreement about the exact wording of the Nicene Creed. See, in the Catholic version, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But in the Orthodox version, He only proceeds from the Father. They divided over three words, and the Son. There was also disagreement about whether priests had to be celibate, and there were political issues, as there so often are. But for over 900 years, until 1965, both Catholics and Orthodox Christians were excommunicated from one another's churches. And then, of course, there was the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. First there were Lutherans, then 
Anglicans, then Calvinists, then Anabaptists, all breaking ties with the Catholic Church for different reasons. By the way, you know where we are on this tree? We are right there. You see it? Non-denominational evangelical churches are an offshoot, I guess, of congregationalism. And that's as much detail as the picture gives, but if we could zoom in, we would see all kinds of limbs protruding from our branch and twigs sticking out of those limbs. If you've ever gone through a church split, you might even part of a, be part of a sprig, an offshoot of a twig. Really, a better illustration would be an earthquake map. See, the more you zoom in, the more fault lines you will see. How that must break God's heart. Because He imagines, if not yet a unified world, at least a church that makes Jesus attractive to the world because of the unity it displays. Now, we can't repair or prevent fault lines in the global church. Don't we wish we could? But it's just too, it's just too big for us. But, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can, we can live a life worthy of the calling we have received. We can, we can make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit wherever we have influence. Whether, whether it's in a relational web that includes other Christians who attend different churches, or just in this little powder keg called White Pine Community Church. Paul says in verse 3 that the bond that preserves unity, the glue that keeps us from fracturing, is peace, the absence of conflict. But how can each of us help to promote peace in the church? Well, we can do it, Paul says, by pursuing three different character traits. They're all in verse 2, where Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's very interesting to me that he mentions those, those same three character traits in Colossians 3, only there he says, clothe yourselves with humility, gentleness, and patience. And that makes me think of Romans 13, where he exhorts us to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we can clothe ourselves with these traits because we have the wardrobe in our closet. We have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us. So it's not a matter of independent human effort, which would be futile, but rather dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, which makes all things possible. That's going to be very important to remember throughout the rest of our study of Ephesians because Paul is going to be asking a lot of us, but he will never ask us to do what we do not have the divine resources to do. God has given us everything we need to promote peace and therefore preserve unity, but we must choose to clothe ourselves, first of all, with the humility of Jesus. Be completely humble, Paul says. What's humility? I don't think there's a better definition than the one that Paul gives in Philippians 2. There he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So humility is valuing others above yourself. I'm thinking, man, does that not take the Spirit of God? Because who, who among us does that naturally? But sometimes we see examples of it. 
If you see somebody who embraces a serving role, somebody who makes it their ambition to do whatever is in the best interest of the person they have chosen to value more than themselves, then you've seen humility. Think of an executive assistant, a presidential aide, a bodyguard, a butler. They don't jockey for status, for power, for attention. Instead, they make the selfless choice to devote themselves to looking after the interests of another person. Actually, the best example I can think of is Jesus. He said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and what? Humble in heart. That's who Jesus was. Where do we see his his humility? Well, how about in the upper room where he and his disciples shared their last meal before his death. Did you know that there in that room, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest? That's what Luke 22 says. It could have happened at any point during that meal, but in my harmony of the Gospels, it happens right after they arrive. And in response to their argument, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This was the job of the person in the room with the lowest status. I mean, if there were multiple servants in a room, they would look at each other and say, which one of us is the lowest? That's the person that washes feet. And that's the the reason why Jesus did it. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put it on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Notice that He didn't lose his sense of self-worth. He knew he was their teacher. He knew he was their Lord. He just chose not to leverage his position. He voluntarily embraced the lowly role of a servant. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? Although he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There it is. Only the example Paul gives is not what he did on Thursday night, but what he did on Friday morning. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus knew he was God, but he chose to value us above himself. He did not look to his own interests, but to our interests instead, regardless of how low he had to go to do that. Humility put him on his hands and knees, and humility put him on the cross. And Paul said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Do you think that would promote unity in our church? Unity uh, between you and other Christians? There's all kinds of different ways we could apply it, but let's just apply it to disagreements. So, because this is how this happens a lot. I mean, when we have a disagreement with one another, when we we know that we're right, the other person is wrong. What would it look like to 
to choose to value the other person above yourself. Here's a radical idea. What if you let them win the argument? Would that promote peace? Would that preserve unity? I'm kind of starting to drift into the second character trait that Paul urges us to clothe ourselves with. It's the meekness of Jesus. Meekness. I use that term meekness instead of gentleness only because it captures more than one dimension of the Greek term. Now, gentleness is part of it. I mean, the way that Jesus taught, uh, treated the woman caught in adultery, the widow who was on her way to bury her only son, Mary, when she was grieving the death of her brother Lazarus. Those were all times when Jesus was so very gentle. The prophet Isaiah said of the coming Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's never harsh toward vulnerable people. He said, I am gentle and humble in heart. And we need to be like that in the way that we treat vulnerable people. But the word that's translated gentle in Matthew 11 is translated meek in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Did you know that Jesus was quoting Scripture when He said that? He was quoting Psalm 37, which encourages those who are being mistreated. This is, this is where we're getting into what meekness is all about. He is encouraging those who are mistreated unjustly to entrust themselves to God rather than fighting for what they deserve. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him, David said in that psalm. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn away from wrath. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the earth and enjoy peace and prosperity. So meekness, as it relates to promoting peace and preserving unity, means waiting for God to make things right. Rather than fighting for instant justice. When did Jesus display that kind of meekness? Well, He certainly did it when He was on trial for His life, didn't He? 1 Peter 2 says, When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. That's meekness. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He did not open His mouth. That's the example that Jesus set for us. Now, in the church, we're, we're unlikely to ever face conflict in which our life is on the line, but there are times when we feel we have to speak up, aren't there? We have to defend ourselves. We have to stand up for what is right. But do we really? And if we win the fight but lose a friend or fracture a church, is that the kind of vindication and justice we want? See, something more important is at stake. God's dream of a unified church. Sometimes we have to lose the battle so that we can win the war. Satan wants us to fight for our rights, 
But the Spirit of Jesus whispers to us, wait for God to make it right. Once again, I kind of feel like I'm getting ahead of myself because we've really already started to talk about the third way that Paul urges us to promote peace. He says, you need to do it by clothing yourself with the patience of Jesus. Not patience in the face of challenging circumstances. There's a different Greek word for that. But here, Paul's talking about patience with challenging people. He says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's like the definition of it right there. Bearing with one another in love. Or to say it a little more bluntly, patience means putting up with each other. Naturally, we like some people more than others, even in the church. But there are those that we have to put up with if we want to preserve unity. And people are unpredictable. I mean, you may feel very close to someone today that you will have to put up with tomorrow. That happened to Jesus. You know he must have liked Simon Peter. Who couldn't like Simon Peter? This guy had so many great qualities. He was loyal, he was passionate, but he was also impulsive and unreliable. You remember how how Simon Peter behaved at the Last Supper? When Jesus went around and he was washing the disciples' feet, Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And, And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. And Peter said, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my wash my hands. Wash my head as well. He was ready to take a bath for Jesus. And then later he said, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you really lay down your life for me? This very night, you will all fall away. And Peter said, not me. Even if everyone else falls away, I never will. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Lord, Peter said, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter said, no. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then what did he do? He disowned Jesus three times. And when the rooster crowed after his third denial, Luke tells us that Jesus turned from where he was standing on trial, and he looked straight at Peter. And it says, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Everyone has their limits, and and Peter was sure that Jesus was done with him. He had exhausted his patience. Even after the resurrection, even after Jesus made a private appearance to Peter, he went back to his fishing business. But there was Jesus on the shore, cooking breakfast. And three times, once for each denial, he reaffirmed his love for Peter and his trust in him. And it was the patience of Jesus It was his willingness to put up with Peter when he was at his worst that kept him from giving up. And look at what God did with him after that. You do not know the potential of that person that God is calling you to put up with. But refusing to give up on them, insisting that they stay rather than go, is part of what it takes to preserve unity and to make the body of Christ all that it can be. Now, what's at the core of patience and meekness and humility? It's love, 
It's the last word in verse 2, and it really kind of brings it all together. It sums everything up. Love, agape love, does what is best for the other person at all costs. Right? That's what the the cross was, the best demonstration of agape love. And Paul says you should love each other like that. And that's what it takes to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, a self-sacrificing commitment to the welfare of the other person. You just do that, and the prayer of Jesus for the unity of His church will be answered. I don't think I've told you this before, but um, this is actually the second time that I've taught through the book of Ephesians. The first time I did it was 26 years ago. In 1997, I had been a lead pastor at a church in California for one year. And things were going so well in the church that when I came to this passage and I taught on unity, it felt almost irrelevant. I have my manuscript in my file, so I know exactly what I said. I said, I can't tell you what a joy it is for me to teach this principle at this church. God in His grace has given us a wonderful spirit of unity. I can't tell you how deeply thankful I am for that. As your pastor, I want to say to you with burning intensity, let's keep the unity of the Spirit. Nine years later, our church split. It was the most heartbreaking thing that I've ever gone through. It happened while I was teaching through the Gospel of John. Can you imagine me getting to John 17 and having to preach Jesus' prayer for the unity of His church? Still today in Temecula, California, there is at least one more church there than there should be because our one church became two. And here I am 13 years later teaching the same passage to another church family that is so unified that I feel as if what I am saying is irrelevant because I see no danger of division here. I'm so proud of you for that. Think about the last few years and how... how easy it would have been for us to go our separate ways. But we didn't do that. We, we, we stayed together. And I'm so grateful to God for that. But I know that we have a very sly and we have a, um, an enemy that, wants to, that will persevere, that will never give up. He will do anything to create little fault lines and then he will widen the crack by making us proud and vengeful and impatient. But we have within us the spirit of Jesus himself. And so we can win this battle and continue to make White Pine a place of unignorable unity. It's God's dream. Let's help make it come true. Pray with me. Lord, uh, you know my heart. I mean, you know that I am fully aware that I could never preach a good enough sermon to, to, to protect our church from this attack of the evil one. You have to do this. We're, we're crying out to you. Lord, between now and the day that we see you face to face, we want to be a part of a unified church. And so we ask you, we beg you, please work in our church collectively and work in our hearts individually to make us people who have the, the, the character traits of Jesus and make us humble. 
Make us meek. Make us patient so that we preserve the unity that you died to create. In your name we pray. Amen.